Luke chapter 19. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not, because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if, if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is the word of the Lord. I mentioned to Joshua earlier before the service that I was going to tell him a story today. You remember, Josh? I'm going to ask you questions afterwards, all right? The story of Zacchaeus, uh, probably known to a couple of you. Probably a lot of you. I hope a lot of you. I hope you all know the stories backwards. I must say I thought I did too when I went to this passage and uh, I got some of the usual surprises that I get when I go into the Word. There was a whole lot more there than I originally thought. But the one interesting feature that comes out right early on is the fact that this is an interlude in the, in the, the last walk that Jesus does towards Jerusalem. And that actually takes on quite a, an interesting perspective uh, as we as we see the thing in context here, he's going to his death. And if you go back a couple of chapters to chapter 17, verse 11, you, you'd see there it says, on the way to Jerusalem. And I'm, that's all I'm going to tell you about that, because this is setting of what we're going to learn this morning. And I want you to note that although Jesus tells a couple of parables to his disciples as they walk along, the next few chapters, including the one that we're dealing with this morning, really have to do with the historical events, real live events in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, and specifically as it builds up towards the cross. Firstly, we see that he meets up with ten lepers, wh whom he heals. He's pretty good at doing that, and he heals these ten lepers. He simply tells them to, to go back to the priest and show themselves, and they turn around and they walk off, and one of them comes back. And that was quite interesting because he was, first of all, a Samaritan. Uh, it's funny how these Samaritans keep cropping up. But he's the one who returns to thank the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's interesting that he meets with Jesus one-to-one, -one, and he is saved, he is redeemed. And you read in verse 16 of 17, Jesus says, your faith has made you well. He meets Jesus and he is saved. And then as we come forward towards our passage, Jesus answers a question about the kingdom. And he reminds them that the kingdom of God is in fact in the midst of them. That he was walking with them day after day after day. And they still ask these questions. And then as they're going along, the, he does speak the two parables to the disciples, the one about the persistent widow who gets the judgment that she requires from the, from the rather high-handed judge. 
and the Pharisee and the tax collector who have two rather radically different uh, perspectives on prayer. I'd quite like to go into that passage at some stage because there are folk, and we know them, who are so confident in their spirituality, they display their works, their beautiful prayers, and their works are abundant, and they don't realize, and sometimes we can see this from the outside, that that is what, that, that, what they're relying on. They're relying on the fact that they do works and that they are able to pray. They are articulate with their words. They're relying on those things for their salvation. God's work in them, as it were, rather than God's work for them on the cross. But we're not going to go there today. That's another day's session. Then Jesus deals with some folk who try to stop the kids coming to him. And he butts heads with the rich, with the rich ruler who also comes to Jesus to get ratification or a rubber stamp on his uh, exemplary legal life. And I put that in inverted commas. And then Jesus throws the cat amongst the pigeons uh, by the remark that he makes about the rich man. And he says how difficult it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle and for a rich man to go into the kingdom. And the disciples are quite flabbergasted by this. They say, who then can get in? Who, who can get into heaven? And Jesus answered, what is impossible for man is possible for God. People who are looking at salvation and looking at people that they know who need salvation understand this fact. This is, this is Jesus' words. Salvation is impossible for man. But it's possible for God. I want you to keep your mental finger in this particular little point about the camel and the needle because we're going to come back there in a moment. Then Jesus speaks to the twelve, and in the new uh, version, which John likes, the little caption there says, for the third time, he actually speaks to the disciples for the third time about his upcoming death in Jerusalem, about the, about the crucifixion. And they just don't seem to get it. They haven't got it the first twice that he said it. Now they, the verse in verse 34, it says, this saying was hidden from them. So the disciples have been working with him, walking with him, talking with him, learning from him for days, for three years in fact. And they still don't actually understand the reality. And then the next thing, as we draw near to Jericho, we, we meet up with blind Bartimaeus. He sits on the side of the street begging, and he may be blind, but he's not stupid. And when he finds out who it is that's walking past, he actually shows more understanding about the messianic task, which is ahead of Jesus, than even the disciples do. And he cries out on the side of the road. Remarkable story how Jesus meets with him. And he believes. And he, he, is, he finds salvation and faith in the Lord Jesus. And although he is blind, his persistent cries to Jesus as the messianic son of David. Give us to understand that he knows more about this process than, than the disciples do at this point. And then, I guess we finish with our introduction at this point. Then we move into the, the, the bustling little city of Jerusalem, of Jericho, beg your pardon. And as, you, as we walk with him, 
into the city, we realize that around about us is this entourage of people who have actually started to gather around him. A number of them, of course, have now seen that Bartimaeus was healed, his eyes, his, his sight was restored. And a lot of these people are giving praise to God uh, for this miracle. And that's recorded for us in these early scriptures. And as we move now into the city, we find that everyone has been on Facebook or Twitter or the Jericho grapevine or whatever it was, because when they get there, there is just this monstrous crowd, huge turnout of people who want to get a glimpse of this, this amazing man, Jesus, the miracle worker, the healer. And Luke adds one very simple little word. It's almost as though the doctor is writing a prescription. He keeps his little phrases so short and to the point. And he says, and from the big crowd and there was a man called Zacchaeus and then also shortened to the point he was a chief tax collector and he was rich and at this point where the word rich comes out you can take your mental finger out of the place that we recorded from earlier about the rich man getting into heaven like a camel can get through the eye of a needle And I want you to understand something quite interesting at this point as well. That this detour that Jesus takes into Jericho, a pit stop if you like, was no more accidental than the time that he stopped at a Samaritan well for a, for a glass of water. That wasn't an accident, and this isn't an accident. You've remembered Jesus' words about the rich ruler, and yet here Jesus is, is to meet Zacchaeus, the rich camel, and he's going to drag this man through the eye of a needle like a fine thread. And there won't be a single camel's hair on the aperture of the needle. Not a single camel's hair will be left behind. The whole camel goes through. Simple for God, impossible for man. Now we can, we can guess that Zacchaeus was by no means... Um, Mr. Popularity in, in Jericho. As chief tax collector, he was probably public enemy number one, public enemy number two, and public enemy number three altogether. There was no love lost by the Jewish community on the Roman sidekicks. He was despised as a notorious, mean, corrupt, dishonestly wealthy man who was backed up by the hated Roman authorities who were his bosses. Nobody dared do anything too, too bad to uh, Zacchaeus or the Romans would come down on them quite heavily. And if you were to take a poll in Jericho that morning as to who was the least likely to come to Christ, to become a believer, to become a, a son of, uh, a repentant son of God, the vote would have gone unanimously to Zacchaeus. He was the very last person that you would think who would become a disciple and a saved son of Abraham. And I'm sure that you can think of folk that you know who you would say was the last person on earth who would, who would ever become a believer. Maybe a boss or a supervisor or a teacher, somebody that you know, friend of a family member or something, manipulative, tyrannical, power gone to their heads, got an authority which is way above their standing, maybe a bully at school who's always picking on someone smaller, or a senior student at college or varsity, 
who holds all that you believe in contempt and never fails to ridicule you about your stand or take you down at every opportunity that you have, someone that you think maybe is really beyond the pale, that Jesus can't reach him. Well, I guess a lot of us, most of us, I suppose, live in pretty sheltered surroundings, so we're not exposed to that too much. Our Christian circle of friends and family protect us in a rather unnatural way from, the, from a lot of this sort of exposure that folk in the world have to have. But you probably know somebody who falls into that category where you would say that, humanly speaking, they're just past hope. You've tried talking, you've tried praying. Nothing has worked. Maybe they're just plain apathetic. They, they're not in, interested. They turn their face and their back on you. They're quite rude about it at times. But one thing that this story does teach us is that the gospel door is not open a mere crack, but it's a lot wider than we often think. We sometimes, when we're trying to deal with an unbeliever, we open the door a little crack and we peer out and we see somebody like Zacchaeus who we know out there. And we say to ourselves, that, that person will never come to Christ, never. Never get through that door, this door. And yet, if you look at Christ's dealings in saving people, you would see that he flings the gospel door wide open to the whosoever. It's not a narrow crack when Jesus opens it. He flings it open. And I might say it's, it's even or, or, more specially, or more specifically, it's the Zacchaeus of this world who he seems to pick on to bring into his kingdom. Think of it, the Rahabs of the world, the woman caught in adultery, the profligate Samaritan woman that he meets at the well, the souls of Tarsus. Hardly the types to come to Christ, you would think. But Jesus specializes in drawing all sorts of camels through the needle's eye. And not just the wealthy ones, all sorts. And after all, he's flung the door wide, it's not just a crack, and he managed to drag me into it as well, and you. If you're a believer this morning, you know that that door is a lot wider than we sometimes make it. He got me through. And we can take tremendous confidence in this, that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is in fact the power of God unto salvation for all those who believe. There's nobody short, nobody whom we can't cope with. Nobody who's beyond the pale. The Bible is just full of hard cases like Zacchaeus who are confronted on their path as they walk along in their day by the word of Christ and turned into generous, gracious, sacrificial disciples. And I want to take this point just a little bit further this morning. I want you to note that although Jesus, as we've noted, is, is, is heading towards high noon, in Jerusalem, the very focus of his whole existence, the very hinge point, the tipping point, if you like, of history, the crucifixion, he doesn't miss this one opportunity to deal with a sinner. One sinner, the scripture tells us that his face was set like a flint to Jerusalem. There was nothing going to change his mind, but he had a schedule. And in the schedule, there was a stop-off point for Zacchaeus. There was a stop-off point for a leprous Samaritan just briefly before us. 
there was a stop-off point for the blind beggar, Bartimaeus. And now this notorious tax collector in Jericho. Jesus always has time for sinners. You should know that. Sinners who come to him, he always has time for them. He never, never turns them away. He's never too busy, busy sustaining his creation. But he won't turn aside for one sinner that calls to him for mercy. You go back and check for yourself how he stopped. The minute he heard Bartimaeus calling out, couldn't see him because there was a crowd surrounding him. And there were people kicking him and telling him to shut up. But the minute he heard him call out for mercy, he stopped. And this is another reason why I chose this story this morning. The conversion of this particular guy is, is just something so vital. We must understand it. So Jesus walks now into this melee of the expectant crowd that has turned out. And he, he does it with this deliberate intent. He has a knowledge that, as, as Luke says, and there was this man Zacchaeus. And he knows that there's one of his sheep in this town that he needs to stop for. And as a result of this, we see that Zacchaeus is out there on the street. A guy like him, you would have thought he would have been busy in, the, in his tax office, tallying up the receipts, checking the the way they all add up on his, what I call here, the apple abacus. He wasn't dealing with all the paperwork, the receipts and that which were necessary in, to keep the receiver's office in Rome satisfied for audit purposes. And he wasn't away at the tax collector's convention in Rome. He was exactly where he was supposed to be that day. He was exactly where he was supposed to be. Just as you are here this morning, you're here simply for the same reason. Zacchaeus was there to meet with Jesus. You're here so that the word of life, the word of hope, the word of God can come into your heart this morning as well. Zacchaeus has heard a lot about this remarkable man. As we saw with Bartimaeus, he'd heard enough to keep him crying out to the son of David for mercy. And so we, we, we see here that Jesus recognizes even though he has a task to do on the cross, that there are yet people, sheep, whom his father has given him, who must be collected on the way. They must be dragged out of their sin and darkness so that they would know that the death that he's going to was for them as well as it is for us, which we know today. I wonder if you ever considered that one of his people, one of these sheep, for whom he was dying, was actually on the cross next door to him. That is just amazing to me. Until the very last minutes of his life, the Lord Jesus Christ had his mind on the sheep that his father had given to him. Yes, the task of crucifixion was the main theme, but he never, never missed a beat when he dealt with sinners. And right there on the cross next door to him, was one who that day was with him in paradise. He met with Jesus. What an awkward place to meet on a cross. Wow. But he was converted. He was saved. He was born again. 
You think it, you're sitting here this morning by coincidence? As the word of Christ's dealings with these sinners goes into your ears. You think you're here by coincidence? Are you, are you aware? Are you aware as you're sitting there now? Are you aware that the Savior is actually calling and speaking to you? Believer or unbeliever? You haven't come here by accident. Jesus has gone out of his way to make sure that you are here. That you hear his voice as he calls you this morning. Once again. Maybe for the first time. You think this is a co coincidence? In inverted commas? Or have you realized from Pastor John's series on the nature of God that he indeed works all things together according to the counsels of his own will? That he sustains the entire universe with the orbiting galaxies in harmony? The other afternoon I, I had an illustration of something that John has actually said from the pulpit here. I was sitting on the chair by the computer and uh, the sun had come in through the one window and I noticed that there was just a little speck of dust that actually caught my eye and just moved across from the darkness where I couldn't see it into the light where I could outside. It just struck me once again. That little speck of dust wasn't there by accident. It was being manipulated by the creator and sustainer of the universe. God who is omnipotent, all-powering, all the time, throughout eternity, God exerts his power in order that we might live and move and breathe and have our being, that the galaxies might stay as they are. Believe me, this is not omnipotential. This is not an omnipotential. That he could if he wanted to. A lot of people think that, that he could. But he doesn't, because it might violate some creature's sense of autonomy or free will. Let me tell you something. God is not a God of omnipotential. That's nonsense. God, God is omnipotent. He rules. Jesus came with a deliberate program to seek and to save all of us who were blind, lost, dead, and hell-bent. And he does it. He achieves that. While we're in the muck of sin and oblivious even to the hope of eternal life, even to the view of it, he died for us. John 3.3 3 tells us quite clearly, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Never mind, enter in. John 3.3, 3, John 3.5. John 3.16 follows. I've already discussed something of that, whosoever. But unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And to go even further, not only did he bring us out of the muck and out of the clay, but he actually created a resurrection in us. And we who were dead now live. That's amazing. Ephesians 1.19 tells us about that, about how God exercises his great power caused us to live, to turn around 180 degrees. We were facing one direction, hell-bent, 
and he turns us around and points us to heaven. And that's what he's calling to us to do today. Believer and unbeliever alike, whoever's sitting here this morning, the word of God comes to each one of us. And there is something new for us every time. Not just at the beginning of life, not just at the beginning of the walk, but all the way along the path, continuous sanctification. So there's not one of us who the word of God is not addressing here this morning. Please to say it, I haven't seen anybody yawn yet. But I want you now to focus with me on Zacchaeus. That's the sort of main character in this little story. Zacchaeus has had within him awakened a, a sense, a desire to see the Lord Jesus Christ. So he shuts up his office and he puts all the receipts, the cash, the books in the safe, including his 10% cut. You remember he was a rich man, which he gets, by the way, from all of these agents who are doing a collection for him. And he, he gets a cut of everything that they bring in as well. And then he says to his scribe, uh, today we read secretary, I'll be out for an hour. Or maybe he should have said, I have an appointment. Take messages. <laughs> he had an appointment, all right? And then he's out of there and he's down the stairs into the street. And he suddenly becomes aware that the Jericho grapevine has gone viral over the last day and everybody in the city knows about this one who has come and there is just this huge crowd as we've seen. And the scripture tells us something else about Zacchaeus. Are you listening to this, Josh? This is for you, Joshua. This is for you. The Bible tells us something else about this man, Zacchaeus. He was short. He was a little guy. Whoops, <laughs> now we've got a problem. Because you know what happens when you're in a crowd, when there's lots of people your dad's size and there's nobody, you can't see through their legs, can't see through underneath them. There's a crowd and the only way you can see is if you get up onto a high spot on your dad's shoulders or something like that. And Joshua, not Joshua, Zacchaeus, he tries to push through the crowd. You've seen how these little guys standing at the back of the crowd, you saw it on the when the... When the uh, what do you call it, the torch came into London, how there were people who were jumping around at the back trying to see over the crowd's heads and they couldn't. And then somebody would eventually give them a chair or a stool or if they were fortunate, somebody would make a gap. But for Zacchaeus, there was no gap. Nobody was giving Zacchaeus a gap. And when he pushed, tried to get through, all he got was an elbow in the eye and some big hand on his collar. And uh, either a farmer or, or a trader would grab him and hurl him back to where he started. So he's not going to get a sight of Jesus from where he's going. And then his natural shrewdness kicks in. And he realizes if he's going to see Jesus, he's got to make another plan because he's not going to see through everybody. And so you see this little chap running down the sidewalk. I say scuttling down the sidewalk because he was a short guy and he was wobbling and he had these robes on and all this sort of stuff. And his sandals were flapping. And he climbs up a sycamore fig tree. Climbs up a tree. That's what a little guy would do. Where did that idea come from? 
Zach was short. And what applied to him not being able to see Jesus also applied to Jesus not being able to see him. Now you know where the idea came from, eh? Jesus wouldn't be able to see him the way it was going. So another plan had to be invented. God has planned everything. When he starts to draw a sinner to him, no detail is left to the sinner. Because if a, if a detail was left to the sinner, we know what would happen. It wouldn't get done. It would get blown. And we need to remember that no Zacchaeus comes to the Lord Jesus Christ unless the Father draws him. And the, you can see in the whole, the whole ethos of conversion, the fact that it is salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is something which God institutes. He begins it. He carries it through. Every little detail is his work. If ever there was an incident in Scripture which was out of context, it was this little man running down the side of the street. He's a notorious, pompous little fellow from the receiver of revenue's office in Jericho, running down, scuttling down the sidewalk, climbing up a tree and shuffling along the branch. Can you imagine what happened to his robes as he was doing that? They were getting caught on the branches. and he, uh, it's just, it, it amuses me to even think about it. Just like a little street urchin. Can you can see you can see a kid doing this, a dirty little kid in the street doing that, with his catapult sticking out of his back pocket and running and getting into a position where he get a better aim. And there's another incident in Scripture which I find equally amusing. And that is when the prophet Balaam has a heated debate with his donkey on the pathway leading to King Balak of Moab. I, I, <coughs> excuse me. I've always enjoyed picturing that one. <laughs> oh my! There's a, a man and a donkey nose to nose on the path, and the man is shouting threats at the donkey's life. He says, "If you continue like this, I'm going to kill you." And the donkey arguing back in Hebrew, telling him what an ass he's making of himself. If you'll excuse the pun. They're funny, but there's something else about these two incidents which highlight what I've been saying earlier. They have something else in common. They display the almost perverse lengths to which God will go in order to speak to sinners. He doesn't stand on formalities. Believe me, when, when God needs to call a sinner into his, into his kingdom, he does not stand on formalities, which is just as well for Zacchaeus because... He wasn't going to get there by, by way of formalities. And so for Zacchaeus, this loss of dignity, the spectacle that he was making of himself, not an issue, not an issue at all. He had this hunger to see the Lord Jesus Christ, to find out more, and what the people of Jericho thought was just by the board didn't mean a thing to him. And then we get to this point where the crowd is moving. You know how a crowd sort of ripples down to more or less follow the main theme of the thing. And Jesus comes in the Bible, it says it comes, he comes to the spot where, where Zacchaeus is and he looks up. 
and their eyes meet. And you could say that time stands still and eternity kicks in at this point. The hubbub in the street, and I mean, you, you've got to just think about it for, for, for half a second, about the hubbub in the street that morning. A noisy, chattering crowd. The word about Bartimaeus has been going around and there's chattering and I, I don't believe it. I, did you see it? What happened? What you, and the donkeys, the carts, the street vendors, the pickpockets maybe. And all the sound, all the sound, all this, this distraction seems to somehow fade away. And there are just two people in the picture. Just, it's just the Lord Jesus Christ and Zacchaeus. Just the two of them, face to face. And you'll find in, in the scriptures that when Jesus personally confronts um, someone who has come to him, there is always this strange phenomenon that, that, that comes into play. The scene suddenly dissolves and it's just focused on, on the two, Jesus and whoever he's speaking with. You think of the woman who touched Jesus' garments. Well, that was an embarrassing situation. And yet in, the, in the, the, the discussion that generates after that, it's just her and him. It's just her and him. Think of the Samaritan woman at the well. Wow. Think of the woman caught in adultery. The situation every time just resolves. Jesus actually speaks to her and they respond to him. The Samaritan leper. The ten had been there, the twelve were there somewhere. But it's just Jesus and the leper and he finds salvation. You think of Nicodemus who came at night as well. The disciples were there. You would never believe it from the first passages of, of John 3. It was just Nicodemus and just Jesus. And the same with Bartimaeus. And at a point, everything is tuned out. Somehow there is a sort of divine mute button which is put and uh, put pushed and, and just the sinner and the saviour are there face to face. By way of illustration, I, I do this when I paint a picture. I take out all the things which are not going to add to the image that I'm trying to depict. And this is exactly what happens in all of these situations. And that's why it was to me a mind blast to actually see this again this morning. But here we are seated together. We come from all sorts of walks of life, as we so often say, from every different parts of the world as well. And we're not here by accident. Jesus has brought us together so that we could hear him speak to us. What a blessing. So the crowd is tuned out. Jesus and Zacchaeus are there on their own. You, you hear the crowd start to mumble a little bit later, but at this particular point, there's just silence. The discussion is simply between Jesus and Zacchaeus. And into the silence, Jesus calls his name. He says, Zacchaeus. You notice that, by the way, that he calls him by name. And there's nowhere in the scriptures there that, because Jesus didn't need it. There was no public relations guy who was there with a little post-it slip with Zacchaeus' name 
and his age and his occupation put on it so that Jesus would know who he was. He calls Zacchaeus. He doesn't say, hey, you up there. He says Zacchaeus. He knows his sheep by name. We know that. He knows his sheep by name. He calls them and they follow him. There's a sequence. John 10. Zacchaeus, he says, come down immediately. When Jesus calls his sheep, they follow. That's the next step in the sequence. They don't sit on the branch or they don't sit on the fence. They don't consider their options. They follow. They come down at once like Zacchaeus and they welcome him gladly. When a sinner hears the Savior call, that's what they do. Now this doesn't only apply to brand new believers either. It applies to all of us who call, call Jesus Lord. When he calls us, he's Lord. Sometimes the things that he calls us to are, are not convenient. They're not comfortable. But everything he does call us to is important. It's for his glory and for our good. And if we spend time weighing up the consequences or maybe trying to second guess or to interpret what he says, we have a problem. The implication is that we don't want him in our lives. We don't want him supping with us. We don't want him coming home with us, sharing his life with us, and for us to have to respond and share our lives with him. He wants to continue our sanctification. And we want to sometimes call time out. But Jesus always takes the initiative in these sins. We sometimes get the idea that we make the first move or the second move or some move. But in reality, it is always Jesus who calls. It is Jesus who draws us to himself and who approaches us. He precipitates the contact every time. He's the one who actually works in us to will and to do what pleases him. We say we came to Christ or I'm following Christ. But I wouldn't have come and I wouldn't be following if he wasn't at work in me to will and to do. I was given life by his spirit and there is a new heart there which longs for nothing if he is not in it. He comes to us just as he came to Zacchaeus and when we were born again we knew that it was nothing that we did except what he worked in me. He calls Zacchaeus by name as if he'd known him forever and of course he has from before the foundations of the earth. And then you will notice that he doesn't even wait for an invitation from Zacchaeus to come to his house. If he did, it would be a long wait. We know that because sometimes when Christ calls us, we say, just hang on a minute, I'm busy. Like me and like you, we don't invite him into our lives unless we're born again. But Jesus has come to Jericho for this purpose. To bring salvation to the house of the chief tax collector of all people. So he doesn't stand on ceremony. But in his call to Zacchaeus and his instruction to come down. The next thing he says is. I must stay at your house today. I must stay at your house today. We need to realize in our dealings with Christ. That, that we, it's, it's not a meeting between equals. We're not dealing with equals here. 
Jesus, creator, Lord of the universe, of heavens and the earth. And we are his people. We've been made by him. We're the work of his hands, his sheep. And when he speaks, his people obey. And it is to be a life of obedience, we know that, not just a once-off. It's not a legal obedience, like the Pharisees, like the rich ruler, who were able to tick off everything that they'd done. And there are folk here today, I guess, even Christians maybe, who've lost their grip on this fact, that it is out of the heart that the issues of life emerge. It's not what I do. You know how it is, folk who, who are like that, seem to do everything that they can think of, everything that they find in Scripture that they want to do, they do them. They can quote, quote Scripture like an iPod. But as they do it, it's somehow clinical. There is something in the way they, they do it, something in their actions, which has a little bit of show-off about it, it's a little bit clinic, a little bit rigid, a little bit cold in the attitude. Competitive maybe, constantly somehow highlighting what they're doing so that other people can see it as well. How well they are doing, and I emphasize the word do, how well they pray, how beautifully. And the attitude seems to say, what's your problem? Just tell me what to do and I'll show you how to do it. But it says of Zacchaeus that he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. There was a heart there, which is just unmistakable. Welcomed him gladly. There was joy in the heart of Zacchaeus. It was almost too good to be true to have Jesus coming into his house, to have him to himself, without all the inquisitive onlookers that were obviously still around there. And you'll also notice that Zacchaeus doesn't try to postpone the visit to his home. A lot of folk here get the invitation from Christ, like a reverse invitation to come to their house. And they put him off until they've had a chance to go and clean up quickly. It's, it's as though they, uh, they think that, that Jesus actually doesn't know what it's like in there. But Zacchaeus doesn't bother. He doesn't rush home. He doesn't take down the Embarrassing Greek murals which he has hanging on his walls. He doesn't go and shove some of the marble statues of scantily clad women into his cupboard so that they're out of the road and out of his... He doesn't have to make excuses for them. All the facades have gone with Zacchaeus. It's all gone. doesn't give it a thought. He's so aware of the fact that this is the living Christ with him who knows him altogether, who knows what's in his house. He knows what's in his life. And he knows. He just knows in his heart. He knows he can't pull the wool over this eye. Facades have gone. He can be real. And this is what the Lord Jesus calls us to do. He, he actually asks us to be real with him. He doesn't want any plastic. He doesn't want any put on. He doesn't want us to do things to impress him. Jesus is coming into his house, into his life, and Zacchaeus is just filled with joy. He can't discuss what's needed to be discussed from his perch on this, the branch of the tree. Not really fitting that. 
His time for sitting on the branch actually ends. His time for sitting on the fence is finished. It's over. Jesus has come to meet with him, to deal with his sin, to give him salvation. And for you who are listening to this this morning, who are not yet a Christian, who have once again been brought into this place, this sycamore fig tree, where you think you can hide behind the leaves and simply watch and listen as Jesus goes past, you sit in the pew and you think you're anonymous. You think he can't see you. He's caused you to be here. And he knows not only your name, but everything about you. The very thoughts that you are thinking at this moment. He has your file. <coughs> Psalm 139 quite clearly tells that all your days are known to him. Not one of them came into being without him. Your days, all your days. He knows your thoughts from afar off. Also Psalm 139. He knows your thoughts from afar off. That doesn't mean that he's far away. It just means that before you even start really thinking those thoughts, he's aware of what you're thinking. And there's no one else in the room at this time, at this moment, as Jesus calls to you. He sees into your eyes and he sees into your hearts. And he calls your name. He's come to meet you. Come down quickly, he says. I must come to your house today. Don't put him off. Don't postpone this meeting till you've sorted out a few things. Then you will welcome him into your life. When you're a little bit more mature, maybe a little bit more godly, with a little more knowledge maybe, you might say till I've grown a little in grace and learned to love a little bit more. That's exactly what Satan wants, exactly. He knows, even if you don't, that if you put it off and wait a little, you'll never come. I don't know if any of you know that lovely hymn, Come ye sinners, poor and needy. There's a couple of lovely verses in there which speak exactly to this. I wanted it at the end, but not enough people knew it and we couldn't get it, the music to the right key at all. If you put it off, if you wait, you'll never come. You'll never come. Yes, you're a sinner. Your, your life's a pig's breakfast. You may be debauched and as wicked as possibly you think you could be. You may have a history as bad as Zacchaeus or even worse. But it, it gives me a huge amount of pleasure to be able to say to you this morning that no matter how much sin you have, there is grace in the Lord Jesus Christ So much more than sufficient that you could ever need. The sacrifice of his infinite life on the cross was sufficient for not only every single finite human being that ever lived, that ever will live, or that ever lived or could live on 10,000 worlds beside this one. You say to him, you want to clean yourself up a bit, forget it. You've got a teaspoonful of sin by comparison. And his infinite life and his infinite death has satisfied the Father on your behalf. Come to him. He can take a camel through the eye of a needle and there will not be a hair caught. And he's here by his spirit this morning speaking to each one of us. Not just unbelievers. But he wants each of us to learn to hear 
to find within us hearts which are warmed. You remember the guys in the road to Emmaus discovered how their hearts were warmed within them as he opened to them the scriptures. If Christ would open by his spirit to us the scriptures this morning, our hearts will be warmed as well. So Jesus and Zacchaeus go home. What a thought. I may be reading a little bit into it, but I picture, I picture Jesus with his arm around Zacchaeus, little Zacchaeus' shoulder. Not up here, but somewhere down here as he walks him home. And it's a protective arm. It's an arm which says to the crowd who are already starting to mumble, he's mine. Whatever the detail of it, the crowd is starting to wag their tongues and to complain. He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. What's new? All these self-righteous, judgmental Jews who thought themselves to be children of Abraham are so put out with Jesus' behavior in going into that house. He couldn't possibly be a prophet, they say to themselves, or he wouldn't walk into, he'd never go into a house like that. He'd know what that was like, and he wouldn't go there if he was a prophet. But you see, a little later, Zacchaeus stands up, and he reveals the heart of a true son of Abraham. He's thinking differently. His thoughts are just completely different compared with what they were before. And he's acting on what he's thinking. That's the interesting thing. You know, that's repentance. I guess a lot of us don't really, really understand what repentance is. I know we, we often are told to repent. Well, this is what repentance is. The actual Greek word says it's thinking God's thoughts. It's turning our, our minds around. How do we do that? We don't do that easily. That's a work of God's grace. It's a gift of God. We know it's God's gift. Repentance is a gift from God. It's a change of thinking habits. It's a change of mindset. And then, then it's an acting on that. That's what repentance is. It's not trying to crank up some feeling of sorrow or contrition at what I've done or what I've been caught doing. The feelings come afterwards. They, they come later, after the thoughts have changed. In fact, the actions are what proves that the thoughts have changed. That repentance is actual and real. No more trying to think of alternatives or another way to do something. No obfuscation, no changing uh, the subject. You know all the excuses that we make, all the ways we try to avoid agreeing with God. Because when we agree with God, it's obvious that we will follow. The problem starts with this business of repentance, where we don't think the same thoughts that God thinks. We're not actually thinking God's thoughts after him. I can only show you what repentance really is by what I do out of my heart and out of my mind. Repentance, you see, is a little bit like love. It's a doing thing. It's a doing thing. It's not, it's not a saying thing or a feeling thing. It hasn't to do with sayings and feelings. And Zach's repentance, Zacchaeus' repentance, <coughs> is revealed by the little speech that he makes in verse 8 of our text. 
Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've defrauded anybody of anything, I will, <clears throat> I will pay back four times the amount. It's not something that's put off till tomorrow. Here and now, Zacchaeus says, here and now, this is what's happening. And from what we knew of Zacchaeus, we can see that there's a complete turnaround in his thinking here. Whereas he was the center of his thoughts before, hoarding of his own wealth, he's now thinking of those around about him in Jericho. Mrs. Zacchaeus had fine clothes, jewelry probably, they had a decent house. They'd added another wing on just recently where there was a solarium and a, maybe a wine cellar and maybe a hot tub. He drove top stallions and he had a most recent model chariot for the trips that he had to do to Rome on business as a tax collector. And they probably ate very well. But for Zacchaeus, that had changed now. That had changed. His focus was now outwards. It wasn't on himself. It wasn't on him and his family. It was away from himself, towards the homeless and the poor and the widows and the orphans. And that's, that's exactly what one would expect with repentance. And it's interesting, I, I was fascinated by this, that this wasn't at a suggestion from Jesus. Jesus didn't suggest this. This is Zacchaeus's heart that has turned, and it's like turned inside out. With the rich ruler, Jesus made a suggestion. And what happens? There's just sorrow in the guy's heart. He walks away. Sorrow. Oh, wow. all that. Oof. No chance. But with Zacchaeus, with the repentance, an actual thing in his life, you see it by the way he's acting, by way what he's saying and by what he's doing. Excuse me. You may remember the, the Levitical law, Mosaic law about restitution when you defrauded somebody. Leviticus 6 and Numbers 5. 20%. The sum defrauded plus 20%, which is quite a, quite a good amount. That way that the person who was robbed wouldn't feel so robbed anymore if he got that bit back, bit of interest. But you see, Zach's, Zach's heart had condemned him. He didn't need Jesus to, to say anything. Sometimes it amazes me that I actually need Jesus to say things to me pretty specifically before I get the point. And I think I, I, we, we see this, we, we know this in our lives. Zacchaeus' heart had, had, had condemned him and he wasn't going to be happy with 20%. It, was, it wasn't what Jesus, what Jesus said. It was what he knew. The law of Christ was now written on his heart, and his heart condemned him. And he had the wherewithal, and so he was able to do four times repayment. And I was very, very interested to notice this. That Jesus responds to him, in a most interesting way. He doesn't smile and pat him on the back and say, well done, Zacchaeus. Congratulations 
on your newfound generosity? What he says is that today salvation has come to this house. You see that? And when everything's said and done, that is the most important thing that, that he could possibly have said. We like to get patted on the back, don't we? And when we get patted on the back, what good is it anyway for us? We are still unworthy servants, aren't we? What, what, what can we do perfectly anyway? But Jesus acknowledges this fact, that salvation, today salvation has come to that house. You want to know if you're a true son of Abraham today or a daughter of Abraham? Apply this simple test, very simple. What do you do with what Jesus says to you? What do you do with that? I'm not asking you whether you understand it or how you understand it or how you interpret it or what you even think about it, although that could be telling. When he says to you, young folk, honor your mother and father. When he says to your husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her. When he says to you, to your wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. That would be a telling one as well. Does your mind raise questions? Do you ask, how, how, how can you do that? How do you do that? How must I show that? Would you simply welcome his call to you gladly and find within your heart that which is there to respond to that call? If you have to ask the questions, how do I do that? You, you already know where you stand, I can tell you that. You stand in a precarious position. You may be a believer, but your heart is far off. Your heart is disengaged. That's not where you want it to be. That's not where Christ wants it to be. And if you still haven't responded to the call of, of God's grace, if you haven't, if you're not a believer this morning, I would just plead with you on behalf of Christ that you would, for pity's sake, get down off that branch. Get off the fence. Take him at his word. Take him at his word. He's calling you by name and he wants to come in and he wants to, to, to sup with you, to, do, to dwell with you, to join with you in your life, to take over the mess and, and give you those clean robes. He wants to bring salvation to your house today. And you will know because he's been calling you by name. Let's just close in prayer.